This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is on page 555 of the Pew Bible. On your Bible, it is likely on a different page, but we will be in this great chapter with so much to teach us this morning. So Ecclesiastes 5 is where we will begin. Now, earlier in the week, uh, I was walking my dog, and the Amazon truck was coming down the street. Now, sometimes it's UPS, sometimes it's FedEx, but I I don't know about your neighborhood. More and more, I'm seeing Amazon-branded trucks on the block, and this is what I watched as I, just, I was walking my dog. That truck would make a delivery, and it would move like three or four houses, and then it would make another delivery, and it would move three or four houses and make another delivery. That's not uncommon if it's FedEx or UPS. They're delivering for you know, hundreds, thousands of different companies. This was an Amazon-branded truck. This is only one company making deliveries. Three houses, er, guy gets out, drops the package. You know, does, does that thing where he like takes the package of the uh, picture of the package on your doorstep. Next, you know, runs back to the truck. Next few houses makes another delivery. And so I'm standing there just going, wow, that is a lot of people getting stuff from Amazon today. So I wanted to know if that was a fluke. Maybe I just saw, you know, maybe my immediate neighbors are just super consumeristic and love Amazon. And so I decided this, I just stalked the guy for a while. I, just, I was like, I turned my dog around and I just, I just walked down the street uh, watching him. Same thing, every third or fourth house, the truck stops, goes into the cul-de-sac, does the houses in there, same thing. And here's the kicker. I see multiple Amazon trucks in my neighborhood every day when I'm home. If I'm working out in the yard, sometimes two or three will come by. And I started thinking, is, is this just not a picture of our times? First, it was, you know, on your computer. Then it was on your phone. Now you can get these little buttons that Amazon makes, and, you know, you can put them near your, your most used items. And when you're out of something, you just hit the button, and it radios Amazon, I guess. I don't know how. We don't have one of those. Um, you know, in more paper towels or laundry detergent or whatever it comes, you can ask Alexa to order you stuff. We have Alexa. And every once in a while, Alexa will just say, do you want me to order that? And I'm like, no, I don't want you to order that. If I want to order something, I will do that. But whatever we want, whenever we want it, 24 hours a day, you can log on. And like 48 hours later, it's on your doorstep. Is that not a picture of our time? Sometimes Amazon's gotten so good. Have you ever ordered something with two-day shipping and it shows up the next day? That's like unheard of in the world of shipping. They got it there a day early. And Amazon's huge, but it's everything. There are more things to look at. There are more things to buy in the world than there have ever been. But we need to stop and ask whether or not that is good. Is it good for my mind, my heart, and my soul that I can shop constantly? Here's what I want. This is what I I want. I want my highest affections 
and my best attention to go to the most important things. I bet you you're the same way. I think you probably want the, most th- the things that you care the most about to be the most important things, truly valuable things, weighty things, eternal things. But much of what I'm told is for my convenience and my ease and comfort actually serves to distract me and to pull my longings away from things that really matter to the things that, you know, I can buy, things that maybe I can hold in my hand and enjoy for a little while, but ultimately they have little to no lasting value. Do you ever find yourself in that place? You want to care about the most important things, but the world is increasingly geared toward you caring about much, much smaller things. You want to focus on what matters, but you're easily distracted. And we put way more things into our life that have such little importance that sometimes we feel like the most important things and time for the most important things, concentration, effort, energy to the most important things is easily crowded out. So last week, the the writer of Ecclesiastes said, be careful how you go to the house of God. What he meant was, pay close attention to where your heart is as you go to worship. And you can worship God anywhere. You should worship God everywhere. So this does apply to many points of our week. How are you? How's your heart? Lots of times throughout the week. But there is something special. There's something significant about the weekly gathering of God's people where we are right now for corporate worship. The Bible talks a lot about individual worship, personal worship, But the Bible also talks a lot about what God's people do when we get together for worship. And that's what Ecclesiastes was talking about. Be mindful, be careful, check your heart where it's at as you're on the way to what we're doing right now. So the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes says it matters a great deal And we should think a lot about how we are in here. And we should think a great deal as we're getting ready to come here. So Sunday morning should be a different day for you than the rest of the week. It doesn't mean you should worship any less, but your mindset should be geared toward the gathering of God's people because something special happens here, now, this morning. But... And this can be a huge miss for a lot of Christians. What we're doing this morning, and I include myself in this, is we turn around and now talk about what happens when we leave the gathering of God's people. And the writer will say we should pay equally close attention to how we are when we walk out of this place. What we care about when we go home, when we walk out the door. And that's the connection between the first part of Ecclesiastes 5 and the second part that we're doing this morning. God is both concerned with how we are in corporate worship, but he has also much to remind us of 
when we walk out of corporate worship. There are millions of things, literally millions, that might come against us and distract us. But what the preacher wants to address specifically this morning is wealth and money, the consumeristic nature of our heart, the economics of our society. And says there's a thing, there's a way for the people of God to approach leaving corporate worship and going into the material world. So let's pray. Let's pray and let's ask for God's help. God, every single one of us every day is inundated by the promise of a better life if we would only have this, if we could only make more money, if we could only, we would be happier if we could just have this one next thing. But that's a lie. It's a lie from the one who calls himself the prince of the power of the air. It's a lie that distracts us from you, and it's a lie that ultimately robs us of joy, satisfaction, and the goodness of this life. And so help us to live good lives now by learning to rightly order our priorities and to care about the things that are near and dear to your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we read Ecclesiastes, before we talk about why, why does the preacher say go into corporate worship and then come out and look around at the world and, and have a particular view on it, why economics? Why money? Well, Jesus answers that question very directly. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. And he's going to pick out two very specific masters. He could have picked anything in the world, but he picks these two things. For either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And here's what he picks. Two masters, two things that are going to vie for your affections, your worship. You cannot serve God and money. For Jesus, one of the things that will vie for your attention, <coughs> possibly even the thing that will wage the most significant war for your attention, your very souls, will be the temptation to be satisfied with worldly possessions and with wealth, and to the absolute, not just detriment, but destruction of our souls, we will, if we're not careful, if we're not instructed, if we don't rightly order our priorities, we will go after money. And Jesus says, you can't have God in that. You can't have those two things. Listen to what Jesus says again. We will either, these are strong words, hate one and love the other. Not dislike, not like, you know, I really hate, you know, when I have to get up early. I really hate having to go to Costco on a Saturday. Those aren't, those aren't hates, those are dislikes. Hate and love, he said, or be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says you can either want money or you can want God. But you can't pursue, you can't be about both. And the reason is the answer to the question, what satisfies you? What satisfies you? It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have money at all. If you lay out the history of mankind, if you look at the geography of the present world, 
everyone in here, everybody listening online, is inarguably among the 1% wealthiest that people have ever been. Historically and geographically, you are wealthy almost beyond comparison, even to people alive around the world today. And that doesn't mean we can't love God. So it's, it's not wrong to have money. It's not impossible to have money and love God, but you can't serve money. You can't desire money and still want to be going after God. And what we're going to read this morning tells us why. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 20 just makes two simple points and gives us one practical life solution. Two really simple points and a practical life solution when people love money more than they love God. So when people love money, it says more than they love God. Let me just tell you what it's going to say and then then I'll read it. First, they become quickly dissatisfied. If you love money more than you love God, you become quickly dissatisfied. Second, you grow bitter to the point that the writer of Ecclesiastes actually says you'll become evil. You'll just become a, your, your, your life will become about evil if you love money more, more than God. That's, that's the natural result. That's the natural end. And the last part, just a practical life solution. How do, you, how do you deal with that? Be satisfied in what God has given you and treat it as a gift. So first two things. If you love money more than God, you become quickly dissatisfied. Second, you become bitter almost to the point of evil. To the point of evil. So what do you do? Be satisfied with what you have and treat it as a gift. So first, becoming, how do we become quickly dissatisfied? Look in your Bible, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. That's where we'll pick it up. I'm going to read it in three sections. and We'll talk a little bit. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor... And the violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher. And there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So remember again, this follows immediately on the heels of what kind of worshipers we should be. If you go to the household of God to worship, and you worship in there, but then you walk out of the door and immediately become greedy and bitter. What was it you were actually in there at the household of God to do? So this says, if you see in your province or your land or your town or wherever, the oppression of the poor, the violation of justice, don't be amazed at that. In other words, don't be so naive to think that you're not going to see that. But the next part about high officials watching out for it warns us not to want to be a part of it. And this is where we have to to do some work as Christians. Oppression is very real in our world. 
we should be people who are careful not to participate in it. So here's what it looks like between the, the church and the world. If things are done right, this is very different. If, if things are done right, churches are amazing places to be and amazing groups of people to be a part of. In most every way, we are seeking to do things in here the exact opposite of the way they're done in the world out there. The exact opposite. So instead of creating hierarchy in here, we actually value serving each other. And our leaders are not asking, how can I be served? They're asking, how can I bless other people? Instead of looking at the church as an investment, well, what's my return on my participation in here? What's my return on my gift to here? We actually are asking, how can I use what God has given to me to give it away and proclaim his greatness to others? Whether that's your talents, the giving of your money, we're actually asking not what is, it, what, what is brought back to me, but how can I bless other people? We're not giving and serving because we want influence, because we want recognition. We're doing those things because the release of them, the release of our time, the release of our talent, the release of our treasure is actually good for our following of Jesus. And here's the ultimate example. Here's the ultimate example of how we are so different in here than the world out there. We extend abundant grace because we have received such grace. Of all the people in the world, we should have an understanding that we have received first in our salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then secondarily in the provision of God, that none of what we have is actually ours, and we shouldn't feel like we're just so deserving of what we have. But everything from the simplest things but the most necessary things like our breath, all the way up to our eternal salvation, all the way back down to our daily bread, all the way up again to our place in the new heaven and the new earth. That is ours, not because we have earned it, but because God has just graciously said it should be. Why? We almost can't explain that, other than that he's really fantastically loving. We have what we have because God has chosen to bless And so we should be people who are eager, longing to bless other people. And so how messed up would it be for us to kind of practice that in here, to talk about it in here, to to give lip service to it in here, celebrate that, and then leave this place to oppress other people and just to be oblivious to the lack of justice in our world And then to join into a system of the higher taking advantage of the lower and constantly manipulating people for our own gain. How messed up would that be? Christians can't do that. Because we understand that everything we have is a gift to us. And so when the the preacher says that a high official is watched over yet by a higher official, he is saying that, that there are always those farther up the chain, and there will always be someone at the bottom. 
And while it's the way of the world to think of ourselves first, it shouldn't be so among us. <coughs> we should be constantly asking what opportunities do we have not to join in the chain of looking for those higher and lower, but instead, how can we seek justice? This is sometimes as simple as the way we treat those who wait on us, who are charged with serving us. If you are a supervisor of people, how do you supervise those under your leadership? And when you hear of suffering in the world, when you hear of injustice, what's your reaction to that? Is it, well, I suppose they had it coming because they've made bad choices? I suppose they had it coming because they don't work like I do? It shouldn't be so among Christians. We should be grieved that there is oppression everywhere. And that there are those who go without even the most basic things in the world. Because, folks, we don't go without those things, not because we are, have so mastered the universe, but because God has chosen to give them to us out of the hand of his grace. So take to heart the words of the preacher. He's been a part of the way of the world which is less to see and fight oppression and more to ask, how can you gather more for yourself? The preacher has done that. Solomon, we believe, was the preacher, wealthy beyond any of our imaginations, king over Israel. But look at what he says in verse 10. If wealth is what you're after, you'll never feel like you have enough. And this is more true than any of us want to admit. Because we've all thought, if I just got a 10% raise... If I just had $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 more than I do right now, then I might feel secure. But here's the problem. Think back to your life about 10 or 15 years ago. I bet you're making more money than you did 10 or 15 years ago. A lot of us probably have more in the bank than we did 10 or 15 years ago. And if that's all you needed, why aren't you more content now? Or is it that you do make more money than you used to make, but you still feel like you need a little bit more? Maybe you have a little bit more money than you used to have, but you still feel like now you could just use a little bit more than that. If you can't trust the Lord now, Doubling your 401k will not help you trust him anymore tomorrow. It actually is likely to hurt you. The preacher closes this by saying there is satisfaction in working hard. And there's nothing wrong with making money. Hear me. There's nothing wrong with making money unless you've unfairly made money at the expense of others. That is oppression. If you have defrauded if you have taken advantage of, then it's wrong. But he says if you have made your money fairly, even if you've made a lot of it, you will sleep well. If you haven't made your money, honestly, no matter how much you have, you're not going to find good rest. So don't make money your goal. 
truthfully, you have what you need. God has given that to you. But when more money is your goal, you'll never be satisfied with with the grace that God has already given you. So don't make money your goal. Now, second, there is actually a way to be so bitter that you're actually doing evil. He uses the word evil twice in the next few verses. Look at verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also, same phrase, is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. So what you might assume these verses to say is that it is evil to covet or it's evil to be jealous. But that's not actually what these are saying. Those says that other places in the Bible, but these verses say a, a person was rich and their thing was actually that they kept all their money and that's what was evil. We would probably call this hoarding or something like that. But the idea isn't just that money was kept. It's a good thing to save. It's a good thing to plan and be smart and have an emergency fund. Nothing wrong with that. On the other hand, what seems to be happening here is a man who has some money, but he never never thinks it's enough, and he's paranoid that he's going to lose it. So he never spends it. And when it comes to what God has given, the writer is saying, God has given so that you will enjoy, which means that when you refuse to enjoy what you have, (coughs) sorry, I'm battling allergies right now. When you refuse to enjoy what you have, what God has given And you only look at what you don't have. And when you're constantly afraid that you don't have enough, you are in essence denying the goodness and the blessing and the very provision of God in your life. When you hoard and say, it's still not enough, I still need more, I won't be comfortable, I won't be satisfied, I won't feel secure until I have more, you're actually putting your hand up and saying, God, what you've given is not enough. I need more, and I won't trust you until I get it. Jesus said that God cares enough about the grass to make it grow, and he cares enough about birds to make sure that they have the seeds they need to eat and the things they need to build a nest. How much more so because you are made in his image will he, has he given you everything that you need? When we look at the wealth, what others have financially, we almost always look up the economic ladder, don't we? We see someone who has more. We easily 
bitter, think we haven't been blessed like they have. But what we often fail to do, what we often fail to realize, is that there are always people who have far less than we do. And we don't often look at them. We always tend to look at who has more. It's one of the reasons I think it's so important for Christians, among all people in the world, to have a global understanding, to have a global mindset. If all you're looking at is the northwest suburbs, you will see mostly wealth and opulence beyond much of this world. What you'll actually see is a lot of the mirage of wealth and opulence. People don't have as much money as you think they do. Uh, I saw Rolls Royce on the street a couple of weeks ago. I see about a Rolls Royce every year or two. Those cars, some of them cost as much as my house. And there's driving around on the street here. But if you listen to stories and get to know people, even better yet, go to places that aren't like this one, you will gain a very different perspective on the world. I was talking to a friend earlier this week who was trying to help a church that he had visited and made friends with in Kenya build a new bathroom in the church. The previous outhouse was washed away by rains. They had had a heavy flood. And they had raised enough money to hire a crew of men to come dig a 10-foot deep pit by hand So that's the height of a basketball hoop. They're digging and they're throwing the dirt out by hand. And then they carried cinder blocks. Think about how big a cinder block is down into a 10-foot pit by hand, one at a time, to build a sturdy wall, sturdier than they've had. And on top of that, they constructed a wooden platform, this time high enough And with the cinder block wall, so that when the next flood came, the outhouse for the church wouldn't be washed away. So this was an improvement on what they've had. An open pit with a wooden platform and a small house, all built by hand. Was progress for this church in Kenya. We tend to look up, not down. Verse 16 calls hoarding, you know, refusing to see the abundant blessing of God, a grievous evil. And says, what purpose is there in hoarding eventually anyway? You can build great wealth, but wealth is easily lost. And wealth never brings the joy you hope it will. What does bring satisfaction is sharing giving, blessing other people, and using what God has given you to enjoy the life that he set up before you. Now, there is a balance here. I'm not advocating recklessness. But in your heart, you may very well know, are you most concerned with keeping your money to the detriment of joy in this life and the freedom that comes from giving some of it away to bless other people and using some of it for your joy? It's possible to spend your whole life accumulating and never see really much from it. Isn't that sad? 
Isn't that really, really sad to think that a person would spend their whole life believing they never had enough? Even doing good hard work, but never really getting to enjoy it. And that's the last part. Be satisfied with what God has given you and treat it as a gift. So Ecclesiastes 5.18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now here's another way of saying what these verses just said. You work really hard. This is what we just said. You work really hard. What point is there in that if all you will ever do is think, I just need a little more? What point is all your hard work if it will never, ever, ever, if it can never possibly be enough? God doesn't give you what you have so you will be disappointed by it and spend your life looking around for more. At the end of your life, you can't take your money with you. And you will hardly remember, this is what it's saying, you will hardly remember any of your individual days. But you will remember if you were happy and satisfied or spent much of your time bitter because you were thinking that the person who lives next door just seems to always have a little bit more. I've seen people who are happy and full, and I've seen people who are angry and jealous. And you know what I've come to realize? How much money they have never really seems to change that. If you think you can only be happy if you have more money, no matter how much you have, you're not going to be happy. That's the truth, folks. If you think money will make you happy, you will not be happy even if you have more of it. Because it will never seem like enough. Instead, spend your days and your life gratefully praising God for what he has given you and enjoy it. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Enjoy your life, for it is a gift from God. I want to close with, with what I think is one of the most common objections to this. Someone would say, but you don't know my situation. Besides, isn't it good to work hard? Isn't it good to be careful? Isn't it good to save? And to that I would say, yes. I am not advocating frivolity. I am not advocating that you just drain everything, you throw down your credit card on the trip of a lifetime. I'm not advocating that. But what I am advocating is that you enjoy life as God has given you under his lordship the means to do so. Yes, do some people have more money than others? Well, what, what, what do you want me to do? Stand up here and say, no, we all have about the same. No, we don't. And that's okay. That is okay. Some of us will have more than others. What the writer is saying is God has laid out your life before you, so enjoy it. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31, I read the first part of this earlier. Let me read the second part. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after these things. And by Gentiles, they, they don't mean necessarily in this case, people who are not from the Jewish nation. They mean people who don't know the one true living God. But your heavenly father and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. So this is what we do, he says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. How do I do this? Spend far less time seeking the wealth and the riches of this world and spend your days seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I promise you will not at the end of your life be disappointed in the size of your bank account if you give your days to seeking the kingdom of God. You will have abundant blessing. And folks, when you look at heaven, the prize that Christ has won for his people, everybody is more wealthy than Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett combined. So don't worry about wealth in this world. You have what you need. If you have need and you're a part of this church, you're in a great family. Let us know of your need. We'll help you. We'll give you more than you need. Because God has given us more than we need, and it's our great joy to bless other people. So when you walk out of here today, other than celebrating your mom, look around and say, where is their oppression? How is a grace-filled person, can I spread grace? And how can I seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness today? I promise it will be a better day for you than if you seek another dollar. Let's pray. May we be a people who seek the kingdom of God and want nothing more than to be found in your presence and known by your love and grace. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.